Welcome to the Connect the Dots podcast. My name is Heather and I am your host. It is week three of the month, so that means it is interview week. And this week is an extra special treat because we are going to have two interview episodes this week. Uh, Today's episode, I welcome Tim Thorne to talk with me about imposter syndrome, specifically how men experience imposter syndrome. Tim was very open about his experiences, and I am extremely thankful for his insights. Before we jump into the interview, I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on the app that you're listening to or on YouTube if you're watching. I would really appreciate the support. This also makes sure that you don't miss any new episodes or bonus content that I put out, like the second episode that's going to come out this week. You don't want to miss it. So let's get into the interview. Tim, I am very excited to welcome you to the show today. Uh, Folks, obviously, if you don't know Tim, let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, He is a master of numbers a player of various musical instruments, a builder of garden beds, a baker of bread and other fabulous dishes, and an all-around awesome guy to know. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I've told him like my a little bit of, obviously, my perception of you, like all of the things that I know about you and how cool you are. But uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so, yep, I'm Tim, um, 40 year old, married, father of three. Uh, I work in the health insurance industry in the actuarial field, uh, which basically means that I use numbers to make a crystal ball into what your health insurance is going to cost my company next year and how much we need to charge to cover your bills. Um, I have a bachelor's and master's in mathematics, uh, here at the bachelor's level and applied at the master's level. I've done some work with uh, neural networks and machine learning and models of the human brain, uh, which is what my master's thesis ended up being centered on. Um, As Heather mentioned, I love music. I love playing it and listening to it. into martial arts, into growing food, into cooking food, baking food, uh, just about anything else that I can get my hands on. Um, I'm a mostly grown-up ADD kid, um, so there's a little bit of neurodivergence that plays a role in some of my perspectives as well. Um, yeah, that's the basics. That's the basics. It takes a while to go through the long version, so we'll skip that. <laughs> Well, I know they're going to learn a lot about you as we as we get into our conversation today, uh, which is all about imposter syndrome. Um, so before I get into my questions, um, I want to just make sure people know, like, they know the term imposter syndrome, but like, what's the definition? So I went out to my favorite uh, Googles and, um, and did a little searchy search. And so verywellmind.com came up first. And so this is what they say imposter syndrome is. It refers to an internal experience of believing that you are not as competent as others perceive you to be. While this definition is usually narrowly applied to intelligence and achievement, it links to perfectionism and the social context. To put it simply, imposter syndrome is the experience of feeling like a phony 
<laughs> you feel as though at any moment you're going to be found out as a fraud, like you don't belong where you are, and you only got there through dumb luck. It can affect anyone, no matter their social status, work background, skill level, or degree of expertise. So in episode 98 of the 100 Days of Podcast, I talked about a thought in, I had in regards, in regards to imposter syndrome in men. I had been in a class that was focused on women and underrepresented um, minorities and like being able to self-promote. Um, and they and it just kind of brought this thing into my head, like, wait a minute, like we're talking about imposter syndrome. Obviously, it's very much focused on, you know, usually whenever I hear it or see it, it's focused on the female um, or, or a minority. And it's not ever really talked about as far as the male perspective. So I asked if any of my male listeners would come and talk uh, with me about this concept. Uh, it did not take long for you to, uh, to send me a message and be like, hey, that's me. Let me, let me go. I, I want to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, you volunteered as tribute. And, uh, and here we are. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so the, the particular statement, and I'm going to paraphrase that, you know, made me have to reach out uh, to you was questioning whether men experience imposter syndrome and whether we talk about it. Uh, and the answer to both was just a yes. Oh my God. Yes. Especially on the first one, the experience in it, the talking about it is more complicated. Um, but the experiencing it, I think, can be profoundly a yes. We are all up in our heads about wondering whether or not we belong here, whether or not we are as capable as our peers, and when everyone's going to figure out the most terrifying version of the answer. Yeah. Um, so I or even, if it, it, it also, I would say more than just being limited to do we belong here there's also a fear of are people going to form the opinion that i don't belong here regardless of the reality of it because perception is reality that's true <laughs> so when you think about imposter syndrome from the the male perspective right so like like your take and what's your experience with imposter syndrome um, personally? Right. So, so I was a non-traditional student. I went back to school in my thirties, ended up uh, leaving my first career to finish out my bachelor's and did extremely well uh, at the bachelor's level. Uh, graduated summa cum laude, got multiple offers for full rides and graduate programs. <clears throat> So I took the shiniest offer, uh, as one is is likely to do, and ended up at a top-ranked school uh, in a PhD program with a fellowship that you know covered all of my needs, um, getting a stipend, covered all the bills, and had me good to go. So there I am at my dream school in my dream program. Uh, the director of this program is a Nobel laureate and he knows my first name and he's <laughs> waving to me in the halls. Hey Tim, how's it going? Um, and I'm, you know, all kinds of elated to be there. And then 
they start parading in researchers that we could work with. And they're talking about their work. And this is a very interdisciplinary program. So everybody is out of their field most of the time. Um, that's the whole point of it, is getting you out of your comfort zone and finding the synergy that can exist whenever multiple fields cross paths. But I realized that almost immediately that there were subjects with which I had much less expertise than some of my peers. And the first time that I started experiencing strong imposter syndrome feelings in that environment was literally in the first day uh, as they're, you know, going through some of these labs and I'm questioning like, wait, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. Uh, and, and questioning, can I learn about that? That's so far out of my area of expertise. And the first couple, it's like, oh, well, cool. Well, that's not the one for me. But then as it keeps going and you keep realizing that most things you don't necessarily know much about, you start to wonder why these other people in the room with you, your peers, are able to ask questions that you don't even understand the question let alone the answer, uh, you know, and in academia, it's a very competitive environment. Uh, this particular fellowship, I was one of 10 people that were admitted to it in my year. Uh, there were hundreds of folks that applied to it, all of whom were highly qualified in the first place. And so there's a natural awareness that like, I am filling a seat that other butts could have been in. Uh, they chose me to be here. And that should be a huge compliment. But instead, it started to manifest very quickly for me as a sense of, oh God, they're going to kick me out of my chair. They're going to figure out that I don't have enough of a biological background. I can't cover this gap between my home field and the ancillary fields. Uh, I'm not going to learn quick enough. I'm not going to learn well enough. I'm not going to be able to offer the brilliant insights that my peers are, and they're going to identify me as an outlier and send me packing. And then what am I going to do? I moved my family across the country in order to participate in this degree. If I don't get a doctorate out of this, I'm doomed. I've made a huge mistake. What am I even doing here? Um, and the anxiety and the panic start to set in. And then you digest that a little bit. You know, some time goes on. And you come to terms of like, okay, well, I signed myself up for something really hard. Maybe I just need to dig in. And then the perfectionism starts to show up. Uh, and that's the other dirty side of it, is that it is, for me at least, Imposter syndrome is a bit of a cyclical thing where I teeter-totter back and forth between I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the best there ever was. I'm going to smash it. I'm going to knock it out of the park. And, oh, God, I can't knock it out of the park. I shouldn't be here at all. I'm terrible at science, and I need to go home. Um, with very little time in the middle. It's usually one extreme or the other. <laughs> uh, and for me, that cycle went so that first year uh, I was in a very interdisciplinary mode and then this in this particular program 
you determine a department that you actually do your PhD in. And you're still doing interdisciplinary work, but you have a primary field. Uh, so I was hoping that after that first year, it would die down a bit. And that once I got back into math world, everything would just be okay. And then I met my cohort and started falling into the same trap of comparing myself to others and measuring my worth with a yardstick of academic achievement. Um, and as is typical for a doctoral program, there were some folks coming in with a bachelor's, some folks coming in with a master's. Um, some people were 22 with no responsibilities. Some people like myself were in their you know, 30s. Um, very few of us in our 30s, actually. <laughs> but some in the late 20s that maybe worked for a couple of years and had some real world experiences there. Um, but yeah, I fell into the same trap. And, you know, if I don't, if I found myself not measuring up favorably against somebody that already had a master's degree, had already performed a thesis, had already published multiple papers or worked in an NSF lab, uh, if I can't keep up with them, then I must not belong here. And just those feelings of self-loathing and questioning. Um, and ultimately, the real kicker is that those thoughts can become so overwhelming that they impact your ability to perform greatly. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where like, you're not able to perform to the high standard that you were before you started falling into that broken thought process. And then it's really easy for you to find evidence that these suspicions that you don't belong here are actually well-founded. Um, and I, I ultimately ended up leaving uh, graduate school. Uh, I, I got a master's out of it, you know, and I'm in a career path now where I am again uh, excelling. And I won't say that I never have imposter syndrome type feelings, but much less intense. They're much more manageable where I'm at now. But in that intense, elite, competitive environment where you know that not only are you competing against yourself to graduate, but there's going to be postdoc opportunities that you have to compete for. And there's far fewer seats than there are candidates. And then there's going to be tenure track positions that you have to compete to get the opportunity to prove yourself over a three to six year period to get a tenure track job, tenure track job and get tenure ultimately um and if you fail to meet that competitive edge at any point along the process you're derailed and you have to figure out plan b um so so that's hyper competitive environment is just it's really unhealthy and it brings out just terrible terrible feelings uh that really they rot you from the inside they're really really bad I, I I see that kind of when you were talking about that, like that cycle where you're, where you're going from like, okay, wait, it's hard, but I can do it. Right. I made it this far. I was accepted, but then it's very quickly going to that, that point of like, but all of these other people have done all of these things and what, I don't even understand what they just said. What is it? Right. I, I, yeah, that is definitely a teeter, like a seesaw that can go back and forth very quickly when when you were talking about this this cohort that you were in 
did did you and the other people did anybody talk about like how they were feeling or was so what kind of how did that come up was was it kind of open or did somebody just like very like cautiously kind of say hey this is how i'm feeling and then things started to kind of flood out um actually i think i brought it up first in the group so we had weekly meetings um where we had a number of longitudinal projects uh and we had a lot of shared classes in the first year in the program um because of the interdisciplinary nature of it a big part of it is working with scientists from other fields communicating with people who aren't necessarily experts in your field so that your perspective can be understood clearly by audiences at all different levels so we had a standing meeting and you know we would talk about business stuff during a good portion of that but we also just talked about whatever else was going on um and in my first quarter uh you know my first half of the first semester i was already starting to kind of wrestle with these things significantly um and so i actually ended up uh asking about resources that were available for counseling uh, to talk to someone um, and ended up asking, you know, like, Hey, I've read about imposter syndrome. I've heard about this. I think I'm experiencing this. Is anybody else? And, you know, going around the room, most people were either nodding their heads reluctantly or nodding their heads enthusiastically. Um, and I ended up discovering that actually two of the other, uh, guys in the group were already looking for resources as well. Um, because they were really struggling. Um, they were both quite a bit younger than me and didn't have the family things on their plate and those feelings of responsibility to do well uh, being mirrored onto others. But, um, but yeah, and the ladies in the group as well were quite open that yes, they were also grappling with feelings of inadequacy uh, to the task. And um, so thankfully at my school, there were great resources in theory so they had a caps is the name of the office it's counseling and psychological services maybe that's the right letters um maybe that's it (laughs) (laughs) we'll go with it it works (laughs) yeah so the caps office is there right and you can self-refer yourself to them just walk right in they're in one of the big admin buildings on campus and they have counselors there that will talk to you right away don't need an appointment you walk in and what you end up getting is a 10 minute screener. So they're going to make sure that you're not a danger to yourself or others. And then because CU has a student population that's in like, if you include all of the staff, grad students, undergrad students, faculty, et cetera, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of mid 30,000s of people on that campus on a daily basis. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, And it's a very intense state school. Every program they do, they do pretty well. They're fairly highly ranked across the board. Um, They're number one and number two in a handful of programs. So the elitism that's found in some academic programs is very much present. And so that office is, at least it was when I was there, I can't speak to its current state, overwhelmed. They are swamped. And they're doing everything that they can to make sure that people don't slip through the cracks. 
screening every single student to identify acuity and triage appropriately is so critical. I believe it saves lives and that's really important. But that means that ultimately they can only offer direct counseling services to a tiny minority of the people that walk into their office seeking help and have to give community referrals, which thankfully student health insurance, everybody's got access to actually use those referrals, um, but they have to refer out the vast majority. Um, and it can take weeks to get into a counselor uh, and then it may, that counselor may or may not be helpful. Ultimately, um, it may or may not be a good fit for you as an individual. And so I think a lot of people kind of give up or don't even really get started on the process. Like they walk in, they do the screener. It's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to kill myself today. That's good. And then, you know, how much time do you have as a busy graduate student to devote to seeking help? Uh, especially whenever you're trying to be on top of your game. You're trying to, you know, keep up with the Joneses. And uh, you don't believe necessarily that they're all going to counseling unless you happen to luck out and be part of a community that's actually being open and uh, vulnerable about the fact that like, hey, I talk to someone. That is part of my secret. That's part of my strategy is that I need a safe place to let it out and get an outside perspective on what I can do to make my feelings better. When you're, when you're talking about that and that whole the, the part about like trying to even find the right resource, right? They, they send you out to a counselor, like that can even put you in a completely different cycle of, you know, like the waiting, the, the wondering the, okay, I'm going to go, Oh, I finally got an appointment. You know, what if I don't like this doctor, right? Like what, and then right. I have to start all over again. Yes. It, it's, it's almost, it deters you from, and then you start to think, well, and, and it almost feels like a version of imposter syndrome is, well, well, do I even really need it? Because it's such a struggle to go find, like, it puts you in this other cycle of, of imposter syndrome of like, yep. oh, maybe I don't really need the help. Maybe I don't really need to need to go through this, this whole thing. In, in, the, right. in the meantime, though, you know, in that interim, though, when when they said, OK, hey, you know, obviously you're not a danger to yourself. So so we're going to refer you out. Did they give you any other like just any other resources like a pamphlet, a website, like any type of other thing that yeah. you can tap into? They did. Uh, so there is, you know, some the main brochure that they gave, honestly, was just a list of counselors in the area. And even that, they don't point you to a counselor. They give you a list. It's up to you to start dialing numbers up and down the list um, and decide after three minutes of conversation whether or not this voice sounds like one that you want to, you know, talk about your childhood with. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that's the right referral approach in the first place. <laughs> Very true. Some opportunities there. Um, finite resources though. I can be understanding and forgiving with that. Um, in terms of brochures for like your specific issue, no. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that they haven't spent enough time with you to develop a, a DSM diagnosis or anything like that. Uh, they don't know what's going on in your head and they don't want to plant the seed in your head for you to dwell on of this is what you're, you are. 
this is the box you fit in. Yeah. Uh, I, I quite personally question the validity of the boxes in the first place, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, the resources, the interim resources were kind of lackluster uh, to me. And certainly, I think there was a lot of opportunity there to just give up on the seeking of help. Thankfully, my support system, instead of being a thousand miles away, like many students, because oftentimes the support system is mom and dad, and they don't usually move with you. For me, my support system was my amazing wife and my growing kids. Uh, and so accountability on taking care of myself and making sure that I'm really okay was present. It was something that I felt every day, even if I was sitting in the shower and just letting the steam try to wash away the stress. Uh, you know, I knew that they were out there and that I had to be okay for them. That can be dangerous too, because that external validation and external motivation to be okay is a, it's playing with fire to rely on that, to keep yourself going because there's a depth of depression where maybe that's not enough and you have to really live for yourself. Um, but honestly, you know, the stakes are so high when it comes to mental health that you have to use whatever you've got to get back to where you need to be. That's true. So before we started recording, um, we, we were going down this kind of path of kind of what, um, like the the generations, like how how males have kind of evolved generation over generation and and i want to kind of bring this bring this back because and i think maybe this is some of why you don't hear hear a lot about imposter syndrome in the mainstream from males is just maybe the way that generationally it has been looked at or not (laughs) looked at and talked about so 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 take me back through kind of that conversation we were having earlier Yeah. So, you know, my thought is that I think our generation is doing a lot better than the one that came before us. Uh, And I think they're doing better than their dads were before them. Uh, And I don't have any information about, you know, (laughs) the guys before the the greatest generation. Uh, That's as far back as my own social connections with my family go. But, you know, our our grandfather's generation, uh, you know, men that might be in their 70s, 80s, 90s now, um, they didn't really talk about their feelings all that much, aside from maybe, you know, anger and lust. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were certain traditionally masculine uh, feelings that you're allowed to feel and you're allowed to express. Um, you know, our dad's generation's... Uh, you know, maybe they were a little bit better. Uh, you know, I think the, the hippie years in the 70s and the 80s, like there's a little more movement towards maybe feeling some other things, maybe acknowledging that, you know what, I'm in love. Um, not just lust, I'm in love. And I think sometimes those two things got very conflated as well. Still do. That's okay. Um, but I think that for our generation, First of all, I think one big driving factor is that our relationship with our fathers is really weird on the average. There's a lot of absentee 
uh, fathers for our generation, a lot of us, a staggering number, I don't have the statistics at hand, um, but a staggering proportion of men my age were raised by their moms and by oftentimes a series of stepfathers and surrogate fathers that gave potentially conflicting messages that very frequently were not really absorbed all that much because I don't really like you anyways. You're just my mom's new guy. Um, But I think that in some ways that could be a good thing because I think it gave a partial reboot to a significant part of the population. Um, Is it good to have the instability of lacking a a wholesome male role in the home? Heck no. No, absolutely not. Um, I'm not saying that even a little bit. But is it good to put down the torch of toxic masculinity and stop passing that on directly from one generation to the next? However, that's achieved. I would say that, yes, that's a positive outcome out of a bad situation. Um, And I think that our generation, for whatever the reason is, I could be way off base in terms of that being a key driver. We are more in touch with what I think is unfairly called our feminine side. because I don't think it's a feminine side. I think it's a human yeah, side. It is, yeah. I think I it's a, that's an empathetic side. I think it's an emotional side. Um, we are more in touch with that. We are more in tune with how we're feeling. We are more self-aware. And we are more prone to open our mouths up to perhaps a smaller audience than the average woman, you know, speaking as a man. Um, we are more apt to tell somebody, like, hey, I don't feel right. I'm not doing great i'm having a rough week a lot of times we use more coded language like that where we're not really being fully vulnerable still and i think it's better to communicate in more detail more precision um but at least we're acknowledging that you know hey things are not perfect uh and i when i look down to generations that are coming up i think they're doing even better um, you know, the millennials and Gen Z, uh, and technically I'm an elder millennial, uh, I'm right there on the cusp between Gen X and millennials, uh, on the millennial side, but younger millennials and Gen Z and whatever my kids are going to be called, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're doing progressively better and better with feeling things. Certainly there's generational criticisms that can and are made, uh, in terms of what maybe they're not excelling at in relationship to generations came before. I'm going to give them some time personally. That's my take, but they are awesome at accepting one another as they are at feeling whatever it is that they feel, acknowledging that, owning that, um, granting to one another, the right to feel differently, to love differently, to experience differently. Um, and accepting that people are equipped differently. You know, they treat neurodivergent uh, phenomena as, as real perspectives and respect that. And I think that is such awesome progress. That gives me, you know, as much as there's crappy stuff happening all around us that we can point to, it gives me a lot of hope. Um, because I think that that evolution into people of all genders being better at coping with the human experience uh i think that's probably what the world needs yeah 
I, I agree. I, I think that it's it's important, and I, and I see it too. I mean, I don't have children, right? But I, I do. I do see your kids, and uh, and they, you know, they are just for for their age. They are very emotionally intelligent and and just and, and kind. Your your children mm-hmm. are so kind. They are. <laughs> and uh, and that, that's because you and you and your lovely wife, who will be on the show uh, in in the coming uh, in the coming weeks, um, you know, because you have you know kind of instilled that into them as well because of things you've learned from your previous generations. Like they did that, I want to do better. I want to be you know, and I think that's how that's how we continue to evolve into better humans. Is we we take what we don't want from the generation before and we give how we want it to be to the next generation. Um, and I think the, the kindness and being open to others and being open to our own feelings and being willing to talk about those things and not hide them inside will help move through things. Um, Cause it's, you could almost, you know, I, I think about it when you when you think about you know, back to imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not believing in yourself, right? Like, like okay, well, I got this, you know, position, or I got this fellowship, or or whatever, and so I know that I should be here because they saw something in me. But then I look all around, and all, all these people do all these cool things. You stop believing. Right. It, it's it's hard to always believe in yourself. Um, and so you've got to have that, that core around you, um, as well, that family or that friendship, that support system to to remind you as well. And even to, you know, I think it's really, I was talking before about, you know, expressing myself to my support group and venting to my support group and holding myself accountable to them. I think that's key. But another thing that can be very useful coming out of that support system is that, they can pose the question to you. Hey, are you okay? Because a lot of times when you're in the weeds, when you're in the thick of it, you're grappling with a lot. You might not have the time or the trigger to stop and ask, am I okay? You may not realize that your own pattern is one of frustration, is one of self-loathing and self-defeat, and that you're just at your wit's end. Uh, you may not realize that you're even there because you're really trying that hard. You're that focused on holding on. Um, and it's important to stop and, and think about it for a minute. I think that's really key. Um, you know, if you don't identify that there's a problem, then you can't possibly do anything to fix it. Yeah. Not effectively. Uh yeah and, and that's a good call out to you that that having that relationship with your support system and and them being able to feel confident asking you like something's off are you are you okay is anything i can help you with and and i've experienced that a lot in some of my work groups where you know they they know me as as who i am and how i and how i you know, and how I usually am in meetings and I'll be just a smidge off or I won't have a smile on my face or I'll have a look and they'll message me on the side, like everything. All right. Like not feeling like Heather today. And it's, and sometimes you need that jolt of like, okay, maybe I'm not okay. Like, yeah, I'm a little overwhelmed right now. And, And then they usually come in to say, can I help you with something? 
Yeah. Um, and then that's where I have to be willing to say, yes, you can. And to give up control of things uh, so that people can oh, help. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tough one. Yes. That is a tough one. Because I think, well, if I give it away, then they're going to find me out. I can't do what I was hired. Like, there comes imposter syndrome rolling right back in. <laughs> right. And when we're talking about imposter syndrome, we're really talking about something that is a comorbidity with perfectionism. It's a strong comorbidity with perfectionism. Um, I don't think that I have gotten close to a single person that I would describe as a perfectionist that does not make statements that allude to experiencing imposter syndrome type feelings if they haven't said it outright. Um, it, they go hand in hand. Um, and it's hard if you're wired that way. And in this world that we live in that rewards extremely high performance, a lot of us are either wired that way or have learned uh, to, to carry ourselves in that way. Um, you have to analyze your level of performance in order to perform highly. And that analysis can and often does lead you to identify areas of opportunity. And you can come up with any minutiae to work on uh, if you take it too far. So an important skill for, for me to learn with, you know, coping with the imposter syndrome type things and with my perfect tendency towards perfectionism is to learn when to say, this is good enough. Um, when I was in graduate school and I was working with my admittedly wonderful uh, mentor, uh, the, the PI whose uh, lab I was in was amazing. I don't blame him for any of my experience at all. Quite the contrary. Um, he talked a lot about knowing when to say that a paper is good enough because this is something that most uh, researchers struggle with. You can revise and polish and revise and polish a paper over and over again. There is no perfect paper. It has not been written. Uh, you absolutely have to know when to say this is good enough for publishing and you get it out the door. You submit it to, you know, a journal and you move on. Uh, otherwise, your publication number is going to be very low. <laughs> yeah, I you, and you know you know you know my thing with perfectionism and how passionate I am about trying to combat that. So that that mm -hmm. could be a that was already one whole podcast. That could be a whole nother one. Uh, but uh, I want to respect time uh, for you and for our audience. But um, any. Um, Anything that you want to share that's maybe, I know we've talked about some ways to help with, with imposter syndrome, but uh, I want to ask, just ask the question directly, any advice um, on things that have helped you that maybe somebody that's dealing with imposter syndrome could try or could look into? Um, obviously, we are not medical professionals. We are not counselors or anything of that nature, but obviously we have our own experience with it. And there are things that we have tried that can that have helped us. So what have you tried that has maybe helped you um, work through some of the imposter syndrome stuff? Yeah. So first and foremost, I would say that, you know, realize that you are enough. You are an amazing person. If you are in a situation where you're feeling imposter syndrome, 
there is undoubtedly a body of evidence that your brain is fighting against right now, but nevertheless is objectively true uh, that you're an amazing individual and you've done awesome things. So as much as you can, reconsider that. Take a look at your past achievements and realize that, you know what, you're awesome. Number two, realize that your value is not rooted in those things. To kind of conflict a little bit with what I just said, um, you are probably the kind of person that gets some feel goods, gets some dopamine hits off of, you know, your accomplishments and achievements. Um, certainly for those of us that are somewhere in the ADD world, uh, a dopamine hit from achieving something is kind of what keeps us going. Um, <laughs> but that's not what gives us value. Your value is that you're you, you're a human being. You're part of a 7 billion plus person community on this rock. Um, and this community would be a little bit smaller and a little bit less without you in it. So people love you and love that you exist. Uh, thirdly, talk to someone, talk to a professional. There is absolutely zero shame in going to a counselor. There is a tiny bit of shame in not going to a counselor and letting things snowball even further and not coming back to the people who love you the, as the you know best feeling version of you that can be because you thought that it was silly to talk to someone. It's not silly. It is important. It will help. It will be a pain in the ass and take time and money. Sure. Do it anyways. Uh, and lastly, you know, if you work on it and work on it and work on it and you just feel like whatever the situation is that's giving you these intense negative feelings isn't the right fit, maybe look at your other options. I left graduate school early. Um, you know, I had a wonderful time wrapping up my master's thesis. I had completed all the coursework uh, for a PhD. All I had to do was take a few tests and write a dissertation. Would have taken me a couple more years. It wasn't making me happy. It wasn't making me feel good about myself. It wasn't helping my internal dialogue at all. It was hurting it. And so I went another direction. I took my master's and I ran. Uh, well, I, I walked. I walked a well-planned out route. I won't say that I you know, jumped off a cliff or anything. Here I am two years out from my decision to leave graduate school. Um, in the next couple of months, I'll hit the two-year mark of that choice. My mental health is where it should be. It's in a great place. Uh, I live in a lovely home. My family is thriving. I love what I do for a living. Uh, I've gotten two promotions at work in the year and a half that I've been with the company. Uh, I have gotten numerous raises for various achievements along the way. I'm being recognized. I'm getting the kind of uh, achievements that keep me pushing forward. I'm engaged. I have interesting problems to work with. Um, and I'm getting paid a heck of a lot better than graduate students do. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> this is in no way to talk people out of finishing the course who are working on your doctorates. I'm proud of you guys as well. And it's all going to pay off. And the research you're going to do is going to be amazing. But 
for those of you that are questioning whether or not that's the path for you, maybe it's not. That's an okay conclusion too. Um, Sometimes, you know, you're having those, those feelings because not because you can't do it, but maybe because it's not the right fit for you. Uh, Maybe because you don't love doing it. So do something you love. I love that. Oh, fantastic advice. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate you uh, for for being here, but greatly appreciate uh, you for being a friend in real life. Um, So, uh, but uh, I will... uh, I will see you soon. Uh, and everybody for, from the podcast, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll wrap it up here in just a second, but we'll, we'll do a little, I'll give you a little music as we transition to the ending part. So, bye. Thank you again to Tim for spending time with me and talking imposter syndrome. I always enjoy my conversations with Tim and am very thankful to call him a friend. But there is one more interview coming up in a couple of days that is actually with Tim's wife, Lori. Uh, She and I talk about getting to know your worth. Both of these episodes lead into the topic for next week. So again, please make sure you're subscribed and you have the notifications on. That is going to be a wrap for us today. But please remember, as always, that you are loved you are worthy, and there are great things ahead for you in this life if you trust and believe in the Lord. Bye.